everybody doing today mr john i fucking love that song man it's like very seinfeldish and seinfeld and like <laughs> you know got the funk got the funk yeah, like old greg, old, old greg found the funk the f- well, what's his name the funk the funky monkey ben Askren. You yeah say, you, you could use yeah. that shit you could use that shit my got friend. All the funk. you got all the funk in there dude oh yeah he got funked last week oh he sure did he sure did i forgot that that Spe- happened on the same night well, no, it was the week before. It was the week before, and because we talked about it last week, we talked about no, it last it, week. It was, I, wasn't it the same night? No, it, no, 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 because we talked about it last week, and then because um, last week, last week we had to pre-record, and we missed. We didn't get to talk about the UFC fights because we didn't get to talk about the uh, the UFC fights. Because that happened later in the night after we after we pre-recorded last week's um, podcast because we had to pre-record last week. So last week we had so the, well excuse me the week before was Ben Askren and Jake Paul and the whole oh, shit show and we right. we had we had a whole conversation we about did. that we did the shit show right very very entertaining shit show but a shit show nonetheless yeah. right actually I wanted to ask because I know last week we did the pre-record did you see the little did you see the intro. Of what? Of the Jake Paul of la- thing? Of, of last week's episode of our la- of our podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I, I I'm gonna I got I'm waiting for Sean to send me some more footage. I got some footage of you from from your from your trip. Uh, My trip. Yeah. Oh 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 yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Sean. How Good are you? Good morning, DD240. Oh, yeah. oh, what what what'd you get, Sean? What'd you just get? A, just a Coke. Just, just a Coke. Just a Coke. <laughs> so what, what I was getting ready to tell you is, so this beer is called Walters, right? And apparently it was, pre, it was like a local beer to Pueblo, Colorado, uh, the home of heroes, Pueblo, Colorado. 
And I recently found out that for many years, it kind of went out of business and they just stopped making it. And then later on, some Pueblo locals wanted to bring it back. And it took them like a lot of research and they, they tracked down this family New York of all places that had the apparently it was, it was like like no shit it took them like research and time they got the they got the they got the uh, recipe from the family they make Walters now but it's a it's a chili beer this is a chili beer I've had it on here before and when I picked it up I picked it up kind of like on a fluke it was at the the loafing jug like the local gas station right I kind of picked it up on a on a fluke and you would think that chili beer wouldn't be like that good right but when I taste it, it's like there's just a little hint of spice, and it's at the very end. Like when you swallow the beer, it's like at the very end. It's right in the back of your throat, you know, like, you know, when you swallow the homies goodnight, same deal, right? And <laughs> I know Sean loves that, dude. And so, yeah. like, it's really the only good. way. It's the only I'm never, way. I'm never letting that go, dude. Like, it's like everybody else wants to kiss the homies goodnight. Like, motherfucker, I swallow. Okay, so don't, 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 don't come shit talking me, dude. And my Tor- mom just came in. sorry mom sorry i'm 40 years old but i never grew up i apologize i I still still love you still love you ma (laughs) oh man i wonder how many people are going to church right now this is our church this is our church dude so back to the ufc so because we pre-recorded last week we missed talking about the fights last weekend and i'm I remember we we had discussed this, I think, internally uh, on messages, but I thought for sure, uh, what's her name, the the, the Chinese fighter, uh, Jang, what's her name? No, Wei Ling is Z- from Z- fucking Street No, it starts with a Z. It starts with a Z. Zang, it's like, Zang, Zang Weili. So, okay, so, okay, so was, I thought she was going to win, but I was hoping in my heart of hearts that Thug Rose would pull something, pull something off. And by God, did she? By God, like that I was, was so beautiful, happy. dude. Dude, when she started crying after she won, dude, like I was like, I was like, hurt. My throat was getting all tight. Man. Like, like she, she did it. She did it. She did it. Like, so happy for that young lady. So happy for that young lady, dude. Yeah. Oh my God, dude. Is like, this, is it, dude, she what? She won this back. As the oh, stats yeah. say, he, she's the he, first female to win a title back. Yes. First yes. female two-time strawweight champion. Yes. And and, and and good for her. And good for her. Because goddamn, like how happy did that I would have I would have bet the house on on Jang, right? Like I would have bet the house on her. And I'm glad I didn't because my heart is happy because Rose Rose Nama Yunus won. You know what I mean? Like that made me so happy. It made me almost as happy as I got sick earlier in the night watching Chris Weidman, you know, do like this poor guy, like exactly what happened to Anderson Silva happened to him. And it was just like, (laughs) 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 like just watching a leg, watching a leg just like fold over like that and just ways it's not supposed to go, you know, and you're just like, (laughs) (laughs) so, yeah. But let's talk about how he figured out he had a broken, a, a broken leg. Yeah, he tried to step on it. He tried to, yeah, he tried to stay upright like a normal being. 
No. I'm good, man. That's, I can do that, that, that's that's some alpha <laughs> shit, man. Like not even noticing that your whole shit is gone. Like he didn't even look down to even notice, you know. Usually you'll you'll see a fighter like glance down real quick and be like, okay, da da da. But this guy, he just he went back to fight that's, the position and the same down. exact thing happened and the same exact thing happened in his fight against Anderson Silva, but it was Anderson Silva that did it. And your body, when you when you a lot of times when you take a massive shock to the system. Your body shuts down like those, those, those nerves, like you will not feel it. Um, I've, I've talked to guys that have been shot. Um, I've talked to a couple of guys that are amputees and when they lost their limbs, um, they didn't feel it at first, at first, they did not feel it at first and they didn't realize what had happened until they like looked down and all of a sudden, whatever was supposed to be there isn't fucking there anymore. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, you know, you're talking about traumatic injury. You know, you, you hear it all the time in car accidents. Like, I didn't feel anything at first, and then you spend the next six months in traction, and you're, you know, in a hospital bed or whatever. And it's like, it. our bodies are amazing machines, man. They're amazing machines. Like, uh, I got a Green Beret buddy that was blown up a bunch of times, but this particular time he was blown up, he was conscious the whole time because he was he was crossing over a canal, uh, like those dry canals. Remember those? Yes. Um, jumping over right as an RPG came in. And oh, it blew him through the air. And when he landed, he was under a tree trying to figure out what the fuck, you know, like get his fucking shit together. And he looks up and there's his leg in the tree. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, oh yeah. 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 That's like, yep. Same. And he, and he, he didn't know until he looked up and saw it. Right. Like he was the team medic. So obviously he tourniquets his leg and saves his fucking life. Saves For his a second. Own- for second time, because like the previous month, I believe, he was blown up and had to tourniquet his other leg, which he still has, but it was just fucked up. So he tourniqueted that one, got back to his team, and like the stupid, like you see in a movie where like, I gotta get back to my boys, you know, like commandeered a fucking vehicle and got, that's actually what he did. Right. They, they even knew he would do that, and they put out at the motor pool, do not let this guy take a vehicle. Because they knew what was going to happen. <laughs> so he goes out and very first fucking mission, blows his fucking leg off. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm laughing, but like, you got to know the dude, man. He's, oh, God, I, so get I get it. Don't, I get it. Don't, don't mind me. I'm paying attention. I'm just sharing the shit out of this thing. It's a random ass Facebook, Facebook groups right now. I'm probably going to get kicked out of a few of them, but. Hey, fuck it. Hey, fuck it, man. Fuck it. So, so yeah. So, um, I don't need you. So speaking of while we're on, while we're on UFC, um, freaking, uh, there was an antitrust lawsuit, uh, with the UFC that started back in 2014, seven years ago. Uh, a couple fighters are involved, uh, that people might know the names of, uh, Brandon Vera, John Fitch, uh, Kung Lee, is the is like the original Kung Lee is actually the original claimant. Uh, there's there were originally seven. Nate Corey Nate Corey was in there. Um, he is not anymore. Um, but I have I found a a um, a YouTube link last night and it's about ten and a half minutes long. I'm gonna share it. I'm gonna share it to the comment section on our live feed right now. Uh, if you guys have a chance, uh, look up watch this YouTube video. Watch this YouTube video when you have a chance, about 10 and a half minutes long, but it explains everything in very plain language, what some of the uh, legal terms mean, 
um, what everything kind of like involves as far as like what they're what what the fighters are alleging and what is actually going to happen, I guess, or what the UFC is kind of countering with. But a judge finally, after seven years, finally after seven years, is allowing this to move forward. And I thought that was very interesting because I know we've talked about UFC and their pay and their treatment of fighters um, on this podcast before, but it's really interesting. What What are you seeing, John? Um, what are you seeing? Uh, th- th- this shit <laughs> just made my jaw drop right now. Um, it says here that the UFC could be forced to pay the fighters almost $5 billion each. That's they, they, they go, so they go into they go into detail on that in that, in that video I just shared. So it's Holy the the, shit. the 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 damages they're alleging are between 2010 and 2017. Yep. The, the original damages they're claiming are somewhere between 800 million and 1.2 billion. As part of this antitrust thing, if if it goes all the way through and they win, you can get up to three times that, and that's where that yep. five billion number comes from. Yeah, and it says it's here. like you, you you can get three times that amount. Yep, you know, and it all makes sense too because it says here that the plaintiffs said that fighters are deprived that they were deprived of 1.6 billion in pay because mixed martial arts lacks a competitive labor market. That's correct, yeah. and that's yeah. what antitrust is. So, like, go ahead, Sean. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was about to ask you, like, what what are they alleging? But I remember over the years um, they were griping because they had no leverage as the fighter to really try to you know get the medical that they needed because the only time they would get medical coverage is when they were under contract for a fight and immediately after. Correct. They're, they're they, cons- while they were on the payroll but didn't have a fight and didn't have any money coming in, they really didn't have any coverage for medical anything unless they already had it. And then UFC decided they were going to stop letting fighters get um, endorsements from places and they got the endorsement from Reebok. And then everybody had you. That is correct. And and so a lot of people think monopolies are illegal in the United States. They are actually not. So you can have a monopoly, but you cannot actively attempt to pursue a monopoly. And if you have a monopoly, there are certain rules that you have to follow, that, that your guidelines you have to follow if you have a monopoly. Um, and part of the antitrust suit, and it's in this video that I shared, um, they consider uh, having a 50% market share or above is considered kind of a monopoly the ufc is somewhere up there there the fighters are alleging that the ufc is upwards of 90 percent so so if the law states that a 50 percent market share is considered a monopoly the ufc is somewhere in like the 90th percentile of the market share so that's like and they're letting they're letting the lawsuit you know go through so we're this is going to be really interesting it's going to be really they're shaking up the game right now and the ufc does the exact same thing that wwe of all places does the UFC considers their fighters independent contractors, and that gets them and that gets them out of a lot of stuff as far as like health benefits, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Like a normal business would have, they consider their fighters independent contractors. But it's like, how are they independent contractors when they're the only show in town, mm-hmm. right? Same with same with rest, same with professional wrestlers in WWE. How are they independent contractors when WWE is the only fucking show in town? You're not independent. You're you're well, a goddamn WWE superstar, well, right? Well, like the, the, that's, time, I, the, the times have changed. There are other players in the market now, but you know. But, but, yeah, but, but, but the biggest thing with what money? With but, what but, money? But the biggest. Right? Like, but, but there is a big <laughs> difference, though. Professional wrestlers, unless you're on the higher card, you don't have health insurance. 
That's exactly you're, that's you're, you're, exact you know, same thing. And it's the exact same thing with UFC. If you're not a higher tier, you ain't got no health insurance. You got no one paying your hospital bills. You know, thank you know, thank God for Weidman. You know, he he's got he's got a good paycheck. He's you know, he's he's been fighting for the UFC a long time. He was probably able to get his his bills taken care of. You know, he's been right. well. But when you look at right. a, but when you look at a guy like um God I I, don't, I can't even tell you a fucking undercard guy name, you know, you know. But you look at a. Uh... Oh yeah, I know. That's that's part of the that's part of the broadcast. Oh, it's not. <laughs> it... Um, yeah, like I can't even I can't even name like an undercard fighter. But like you know, maybe maybe uh, Sean O'Malley, maybe Sean O'Malley, uh, right. you know, is hitting that borderline where. He can't doesn't have that health insurance, but has enough money to pay for his bills. Right. You know, the, right. the, the whole the whole combat sports world is crazy, especially you know there, there's a, there's a lot of I guess like unions that are fighting for for these rights for these fighters. You know, especially especially MMA fighters, they've been fighting for, for this shit since the beginning. Well, and and, and again, it's it's all. It's all in the video, but when you talk about like the big four, you know, uh, baseball, football, uh, basketball, and hockey, <clears throat> and you talk about like market shares and what the players associations, the players unions actually make, um, and what the players make compared to what UFC fighters make, you know, it's it's ridiculous. Like it, it's way the the numbers are way down for the UFC fighters. Obviously, boxing is even above the big four. Uh, boxers will typically make almost upwards of 60% of what the promoters make if as far as like profits that's, not crazy that's why boxing is so that's not crazy it does not sound crazy it does not sound crazy to me and the reason is is because the boxers are the ones in the fucking ring so that does like they're the ones putting their asses on the line i get with like team team sports like hockey and baseball and football and basketball i get with team sports there's got to be a little bit more of a i guess a share because it's a team sport but when you're in an, an individual in a combat sport it's it's your brain trauma. It's your life on the line, basically, in that ring. When your career is over, like, what are you going to do? I know Stipe Miocic, you know, the former heavyweight champion, still holds down a part-time job as a, as, a, as a volunteer firefighter in Cleveland, Ohio. Why? Why does the why does the former heavyweight champion of the world need a fucking second job ever? Ever. Not a volunteer, you know I mean? like, a volunteer job. That, you I, know, it, I, I get the humbleness. Yeah. I get the humbleness. I do too. But it it, go, it goes. You know, when, when they took away the sponsorships, they're not allowing uh, fighters to have spo uh, sponsors outside of Reebok or Venom now. You know, it's the UFC is just making all the money, and the fighters hey, are getting fucked. I gotta say, you know, I mean, it's really. I gotta say, know? the new the new Venom uniforms are pretty cool, though. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I won't be spending any of my money on that shit. I mean, like, I, I just might because I didn't like the Reebok ones. They were bad and they were horrible too they were about playing. getting the stuff wrong or whatever. Like, there's a real good bit of video on YouTube about how Reebok kept spelling people's names wrong, you know, on on their uniform for that fight. Yeah, and they, what it, they gave uniform. Justin Gaethje a championship shorts once too. Crazy man. <laughs> Crazy. And like he yeah. and they they called he got called out in the interview too and he was like oh 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 <laughs> right I mean at that point I would think yeah. I'm the champion 
I love Justin Gage. Yeah, he's one of my favorite fighters. So is Sean O'Malley, by the way. I wish I could see more. He seems to be one of those fighters that's just going to keep getting injured, though, which is yeah. unfortunate. He's the de- he's Some, the, the Derek Rose of the UFC. Yeah. yeah. Oh, speaking of, before we move too far on, I really like Uriah Hall. Uriah Hall is the guy that checked the kick yeah. from wide. Uriah Hall has been plagued with stuff like this. Not as freaky as this, granted, but if you recall, his first big moment in the UFC was on The Ultimate Fighter. He did a spinning uh, back kick and KO'd this, like, almost... It's like he... It, it was like this guy died. I yeah. mean, he was out cold. It was such a fast, clean, and brutal kick that that guy just flatlined on the mat and was, like, out. And yeah. Uriah Hall a really compassionate human being and he was troubled deeply by the fact that this guy was waking up and oh and when, when, the, when the dude woke up he was moaning because his fucking jaw was broken like the dude got the dude got jaw broke like yeah that's sort of been uriah hall's um sort of curse is that he comes in and and own psychological uh state of mind has been his biggest enemy and right. so sometimes show up and he's a beast and sometimes he shows up and you you can see that he's struggling in his own fight in his mind while he's in the fight you know when when he beat anderson silva he broke mm-hmm. down crying baby and anderson was like consoling him like he was his dad you right. know it was great it was, it was a good moment but i mean that's that's right hall and the very first kick very or very respectful. first the weidman fight he checks the kick perfectly so if you know anything about like fighting or sparring or martial arts or whatever so when someone throws a kick at your leg you lift your leg up and kind of turn it outward to check the kick it hurts the person that kicks but it also hurts you or whatever but there's a really thick bone right below at the top of the shin below the knee that's where it's real thick and that ideally is where you want to check that deflect that kick from because it hurts so bad but he did it perfectly, just like Weidman did the Silva. He did it perfectly. Very yep. first strike in the fight. Fight was over. Yep. And you can see it. It messed with Uriah Hall's head. Yeah, that poor that poor dude. Like I, I just I'm in the same boat as you. Like I feel I feel bad for him. Like he's not fighting because he wants to hurt people. He's fighting because he's a legitimate martial artist and he's good at it. He's yeah. he's 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 you know an elite world class fighter. He, but he keeps he keeps unintentionally hurting people. You know what he, I mean? Like, he's so that's not him. he's such a respectful dude too. Like yeah. you know, you, oh, yeah. you see you see him everywhere he is. He's just so humble and he's shaking hands with people and you know bowing to them and you know mm-hmm. things like that. You know that's a that's a big thing. And I think a lot of a lot of that energy shows in his fighting. You know, it does. So, you know, it, it, it really goes to show. I mean, even even after even after the the Weidman incident, he. Went right up. He went right up to him. Yeah, he went right up yeah. to him, and he was just like, "Well, we're gonna do this again." You know, I like that. And big, big kudos to Weidman because I don't know if you were paying attention in between, like the shock or whatever. But when they found Weidman on the gurney and they started wheeling him out, he put up the big thumbs up, which was great. But if you happen to look at his face while he was doing that, he was in agony and still screaming. <laughs> he was doing this. To the fans but his face was just contorted in the worst possible pain ever respect yep. 
Respect. He uh, he put he uh, he put up uh, X rays. He put his X rays up. I think on uh, Twitter or something, and it's it's bad. Com- compound fracture, dude. Compound fracture, like straight, like both bo- bo- both both leg bones. Compound right. fracture, like I, like, a, I think my, I think my wife was gagging when it happened. <laughs> and uh, also, Anderson um, put out a tweet for Weidman. You know, like a very tweet. He knew what, he knew what was up. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. So, <laughs> can we stop talking about massive bone breaks now? Well, <laughs> well, we could we 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 could talk about this massive loss real quick before we get into to OBL real quick. Um, fucking how many? I I I I went. I, I knew Usman was gonna win. I just didn't think he was gonna win the way he was gonna win. Oh yeah, with uh, against Masvidal. That shit. <laughs> Dude, the picture of the night, it's like a still frame, but when he threw that shot and like there's all this sweat just like coming Yo. off of Master's head, just like what a sh- like that was like the shot heard around the world, dude. Like nobody survives that. Nobody you know, survives that. What it reminds me of immediately when I saw the replay. Do you remember on Mike Tyson's punch out when you got to fight <laughs> Glass Joe or Glass Jaw or whatever that guy's name was? And yeah, you, got to goes, you got to do this, and he's going cling cling. Yeah. <laughs> it, was like that. it was like the and and incidentally um there's a guy i follow on youtube called the weasel and uh-huh. he does the best breakdowns of the ufc fights of anybody i've seen and he's very knowledgeable and he sounds like a young kid i'm sure he's not but he sounds like it and he never shows his face or anything but he showed a uh the only other time that masvidal has been knocked out was the same exact thing the oh. guy Oh, it was the last time he got knocked out, right? Oh, he was young. Yeah, he it was, was a long time ago. It was yeah, a long so, time ago. So the guy reached out to to pull down the uh, the the front hand, mm-hmm. and came came over with the cross and knocked him out the same exact way. Yep, and just hit him right on the button. Just hit him right on the button. Like they call they call that the button. It's this little area right here <laughs> between between your uh, between the top of your jaw. Between the top of your jaw and your chin, there's a there's a place right here where, if you catch it just right, like you going you going down, you going down, like. And if you guys yeah. noticed at the press conference, he had two pizzas and a soda, so he had he had his own two piece and a soda, so he, uh, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> he, he he was feeding on to that, you know. But hey, respect to the guy, he took he took it like a man. He was just like he, I, you know, hey, I got, I got caught, you know, I caught. Like, He's it, a it that's what I love about him. That's why him and Diaz had the bad motherfucker title. Yeah. You know, like that. There's a reason for that, you know? What do, yeah. you, what do you guys think about Nick Diaz coming back? They're trying to – so he, I want him to come back. They just – he just turned down a fight because typical, typical fucking UFC, they want to put him up against like some fucking young killer. The yeah. dude's fucking 37 years old and like he's <laughs> smart. He was so smart to turn that fight. He's like, don't put Nick Diaz up against a young killer – Put him up against another aging fighter, you know, like make it a money fight, make it a fucking like, you know, sell, sell pay-per-views, you know, put Nick Diaz up against somebody who's been around for a while and make it more of a money fight and, and sell pay-per-views like that. Don't, don't put Nick Diaz out there to get fucking crushed in the ring. Like nobody, nobody wants to see that. Like that's not his, that's not, that was never his shtick anyways. Like I've never, I've never seen Nick Diaz get fucking knocked out And and, and, and Nate and Nate Diaz, his, his little brother has only been stopped by strikes once. So between the both both Diaz brothers 
they've only been stopped by strikes once. Yeah. And it's like, it took, it took me a long, long time to get over the Diaz brothers, but the the longer I watched them and the more fights I saw them fight, it was like, there was, I, I had this like grudging respect where it's like, they don't go down. Like they just they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming. Whether they, they win, or lose, they, don't, they don't care. That's what, and I love it. I love that. I love that bulldog attitude. I might, I might not like some of the, uh, the I guess the flashy, you know, cocky whatever. <laughs> that that ain't really me. But but if you can back it up, right? Which they do. And when you see a guy like Nick Diaz, like Nick Diaz does not need to go in there and get knocked the fuck out. Put him up against somebody in his own like. I guess peer group, make a make a money fight, put him in a pay per view, sell some more pay per views because Nick Diaz is fighting again. But fucking UFC dude, like they want to put him up against some like young killer, and it's like fuck that. Like he Nick Diaz is not going to be going for a belt anymore. It, it ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? He's just here to do legacy fights. He just wants to fight. Let the motherfucker fight. Put him up. Put him up against somebody that he has like a fucking chance against. How about that? You know what I mean? Like come on, man. Like come if on. See, if you want to see the greatest Nick Diaz fight and this is just my opinion it's early in his career and it was one of the first times i ever saw nick diaz fight he fought i mean this is a young diaz i think he was probably 20. he's been fighting for a long time yes and it was also early ufc but yes, he fought a young robbie lawler yep who yep. was a just like always he's robbie lawler nowadays is a, a really much <laughs> artist but at the time he was just a knockout artist wrestler and yep. Out of the militage camp was which was just brutal. I think I may be wrong on that. I might be making shit up. Robbie, uh, I don't. It was either top team or AKA or fucking. It might have been. I'm looking it up right now. Give me a second. But continue with what yeah, you're saying. So I, I, I knew, knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna bring up that fight. So go ahead. Go ahead. Everybody knew that Nick Diaz was a, a jujitsu wizard. Everybody knew Robbie Lawler was a knockout artist, and so everybody knew how this fight was gonna go. But Diaz was like, "Nope, I'm striking with this guy," and he knocked out Robbie Lawler on his feet. It was one of these weird knockouts where he hit him, and it wasn't even like this big powerful shot. It was just a crisp, hard Nick Diaz shot. Yep. And Robbie Lawler literally stiffened up like this and just tipped over like a tree. Yep. With this weird look on his face. And it was unbelievable. He hits I think it be the first time you would ever you ever heard Joe Rogan lose his shit in the the booth. You know, like <laughs> yep. the, it was a while. It was a while. It was back when Joe Rogan had hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was. When he was making ample money. Yeah. Yeah. It like, was it was it was militant. It was the it was militant. Uh, militich. Yes, two thousand to two thousand thirteen. He was with uh, Militich Fighting Systems. So yes, that's you were right. You're spot on, sir. Spot on, sir. Well done, well done. So yeah, sure. like but and, th- and there and you just brought it up. You just made my point for me. Like have Robbie Lawler and Nick Diaz fight again. Oh my God, Diaz Lawler too. Oh, Diaz Lawler. That, see, see, I'm selling it. I'm selling it for you right now. There it is. Diaz Lawler too. Can you imagine that? Like the oh re- the rematch, God. the rematch, like almost twenty years later, right? Yeah. Like it holy would work. Shit. It could work. Holy shit. It could work. Holy shit. Yeah, that would. That, you hear? You don't need to put. Nick Diaz does not need to be put up against a fucking killer. Like put him yeah. up against Robbie Lawler. Robbie Lawler's still a killer, but you know Robbie Lawler's in in the twilight of his career as well. So like, there it he is. Diaz is no gatekeeper. That's an insult to his career. Oh, and absolutely. I, I've always regarded him and his brother both as like the villains, but I, I like what yeah. they do. 
I like that they're unstoppable in, in, in their approach. They're not like trying to lay back and count. Like they're, they're coming at you and everybody knows it. Yep. If you watch, if you watch, um, oh man, I can't remember if it was Nick or Nate, but they fought Cowboy Cerrone and Cerrone just didn't, he had no answer. And he got, that was Nate. Oh, yeah. He got was fucked up. There were so many punches he, that he got hit with in that fight. Yep. Believable, man. Yeah, well, and, and 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 you know, two oh nine, man, Stockton slap, dude. It's it, it's coming back around again, dude. It's coming the back. Only, the only the very first fight that I ever saw um, any of those guys get dominated in was when Ben Henderson fought Nate Diaz, and and he was picking them up and throwing them and tossing them, and like it was just like, oh my god, oh my god, you know, like this. Is, it was enjoyable because I'd always seen Nate be a bully on people, and I kind of didn't like him when he was younger. As he's gotten older, he's gotten more of a personality that I can appreciate as a grown man, you know? Right. It's same, same. Like, I remember yeah. uh, the Nate, Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor, their first fight. Mm-hmm. I saw that was on uh, – that happened during my second tour in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So we were watching it, you know, on AFN. You know, we were, we were watching it. We got to see the fight. And when – it was like everybody was so shocked that he just – took Conor McGregor to town in that fight and just demolished him and choked him out and freaking everybody was so shocked. And, and what was the first words out of his mouth? I'm not surprised motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> surprised, motherfuckers right. Like <laughs> that was what won me over to Diaz. That same. was it. That fucking moment. Same, dude. <laughs> he didn't say all this crazy shit. He didn't be like, fuck you. And all this. He was like, I'm not surprised. I'm, not motherfuckers. Surprised. I'm like, that dude, he's a straight up G and I love it. The, it really is. I, I love how he goes to like the the open workouts with the joint already lit in his mouth. Oh yeah. He just oh, shows yeah. up. He's just like, I'm here. Zero yeah. fucks. Zero fucks given, dude. You know, as he, you know, hey, I got I got to respect it. I like it, man. I probably would do the same thing too. Granted, I'd probably be the one getting arrested, but <laughs> there's a great video of um, you know how they'll do the. Uh, the cameo shots in between fight rounds. Yeah, like yeah. Great video of him waiting until the camera gets on him, pulling out a blunt and lighting it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I love this dude, man. <laughs> it's like you can't say anything to him and you can't say anything to Snoop Dogg. No, no you really no. can't. You really can't. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so so it's, it's an exciting week. It's been 10 yep. years since we killed... Yep. Osama bin Laden. Motherfucking Osama bin Laden is dead as fuck. Dead as fuck. Operation Neptune Spear happened in the middle of the night, May 2nd, 2011. Yep. Yep. Fuck that cocksucker. Fuck that cocksucker. You're dead. I'm pissing on your fucking grave. Whenever I fucking take a cruise, you know, I've never been on a cruise. You know, I'm not very close to the ocean, right? But when I take a cruise... I'm going to sneak out one night. I'm going to fucking piss over the side of the fucking deck just so I can piss on your fucking grave, you fucking piece of shit. That's right. He's in, like, the, he's in like the ocean. Like the fucking ocean. No, dude, no, no, no country No country was going to claim him. He was originally from fucking Saudi Arabia. He's actually – and really funny story, which a lot of people don't do their – you know, they don't read their history. His family is still a very powerful and influential influential yeah. family as, as, bus- as business people, right? Like he – Went off to the side and got real extreme with everything, obviously. But, um, yeah, like, his his family is a very powerful business family. And he left all that behind to go do his shit after he fought in the uh, Soviet-Afghan Af- War. Um, who, what's that? 
So he was in the Mujahideen. Yeah. yeah, he was. He was. And then and then the uh, the Taliban let him stay in Afghanistan, and he did a lot of planning. Uh, he attacked uh, a Navy ship uh, in the 1990s called the USS Cole. 19, 19 sailors died. And this is all pre-9-11. This is all before 9-11. And then, obviously, 9-11 happened. And he took full responsibility of that because it was fucking him. Him and a bunch of his buddies fucking planning that shit out. And here we are fucking 20 years later. You know, we're still in Afghanistan because of that cocksucker. You know, it's like, but you're dead. But you're fucking dead. So you fuck. Wanna, you want to blow your mind? Uh, anybody that wants to take the time to do the research, this is fact. This is not conspiracy. The day the towers got hit, uh, I believe it was like either the, the day before or the day of, uh, the American government flew the o- Osama bin Laden family, the bin Laden, of, yeah. out of America because they, they're here. They're business people or whatever. They got they got the bin Ladens out of America. It was, it was, it was, it was the day of. It was the day of. So I, right after it happened, there those were the only planes flying they 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 had grounded all air traffic in the United States for the first time in history. Oh, it was crazy! Um, it was crazy. Like it was very no crazy. Planes. God. No planes. No planes. I growing up, I was in Tucson, Arizona at the time with you know an Air Force base right there. So all I saw was planes every day, and it was insane to not see air traffic um, in the skies uh, the like three or four days afterwards. And um, those were the only planes flying that day after they grounded all air traffic. The only planes that flew that day was the president and freaking the bin Laden family out of the country because they knew they knew it was going to come right back. And the American public was rightfully so very fucking angry and pissed off. But just by by virtue of having that name, they knew it was going to be very, very dangerous for that for that family to uh, to be in this country, basically. Well, so I, I, uh, I lived in Mesa, Arizona at the time, and there was a this was a, this was a big story, but there was a just a small uh, gas station on the corner right by where I live and some dumbass. Oh. Yeah, it was a Sikh. Is that how they pronounce it? Or say they were the real tight turbans. Um, yep. And someone went in and shot him and killed him because they thought he was a Muslim. Right. Yeah. That's the, that's the Sikh religion. I, I remember that as well. I remember that as well. That's like, that was very unfortunate when uh, bigotry takes the place of, uh, Hard evidence and facts, right? And that, that was just bigotry and fear. Yes, that's yeah. exactly that's all that was. Yeah, that's all that. You know, I get it's. I grew up. You know, I've told the story a few times on the show. Uh, I grew up right across the the river from the towers. You know, so like see, you know, seeing it, seeing it, tasting the sulfur and picking up the ashes from the ground. It's 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 a fucked up memory. And we're talking about we're we're going into twenty years now since it's been nine eleven. Yep, this, and, this will be twenty years. Yeah, yeah and then was it nineteen ninety two? The world, the the basement of the World Trade Center got, or was it ninety three? Ninety three. Yeah, it was ninety three. You know, and this was also this is this has been the manhunt going on for a while. So it, you know, we're talking, and then we're even talking before that during during you know the uh, when the was it the the Russo Afghan War? Yeah, which yeah, is that, I think that I think that's when like I I think. When a lot of this shit start started popping off with him, it did. Well, it did. He 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 left Saudi Arabia and he went to go be part of the Mujahideen um, during the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. They called that uh, Russia's Vietnam. 
They called that the yeah. Soviet Union's Vietnam. And the American, like the CIA, was very heavily involved there. We, we supplied the Mujahideen with weapons, um, stinger, miss- stinger missiles, like surface-to-air missiles, to shoot down Soviet helicopters. Um, you're talking about a lot of stuff. We're, we're talking about like global, you know, socio-political stuff. You know, like these, these guys in these dark, smoke-filled rooms, you know, war game and stuff, trying to trying to play this chess match, this constant chess match. And when they home in on certain areas of the world, obviously those areas of the world suffer greatly. And the Afghan people, uh, God damn, man, like, God, they deserve a lot better than they've got. And they've had it for the last 40 years. It's, it's been, it's been, it's been 40 years uh, since the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And they have known nothing but war pretty much since they had the rush or the Soviet invasion. They went right into a civil war that ended in about 1995 ish, 1996. They had a few years of like relative peace. If you want to call it that relative peace. And then nine 11 happened and we moved in in October of 2001 and we've been there ever since. So for the last 40 years, they've only had like three or four years of relative peace, but it was relative peace underneath Taliban rule, right? Mm. So even when they're, which is, it's, it's horrifying. It's fucking, and, they, and they're already gearing up. I've been reading, I've been paying close attention to some news articles about Afghanistan. They're already gearing up for another civil war after we leave. So the, the Biden administration is looking at pulling out and we only have a couple of thousand troops there right now. And when we pull out, that's it. there's people, there's people in the North. Uh, they, back in the nineties, they called it the Northern Alliance. That was the faction that was against the Taliban. Yeah. Um, the, there are people in the North that are once again, gearing up to fight the Taliban. Fight the Taliban. Yeah. As they should, to be As honest. They should. As they fucking should. Like then, it's you know, we're gonna get we're gonna get the occasional American that, that will finish up their time in the US military and probably end up going out there to fight alongside these people as well. It it's happened before. We saw it many times in Syria. There were plenty of plenty of American American trained Yep. Plenty of American trained that we would go fight with the Kurds and like they were you would call them mercenaries, I guess. That's really all you can call them. They're mercenaries. Exactly. They were going there just to fight. They like fight. They like fighting. They like they like the they like the battle, and they went over there to fight. You know, and that's there's actually a really good show on the. Uh, I think it's on History Channel. It's like a six part series about it. Uh, I have to figure out the title for it. I'll, I'll I'll get to it. I'll get to it. But it was a really good show. It was a six episode. It was a six episode series, and they talked about these Americans who. One guy actually got medically discharged, and he was just like, "I need to fight! I need to fight!" And he ended up going to Syria. So it's been, it's been a it's it's very interesting, and I know this is going to be something that is going to continue to happen. Um, when but. you get the itch, man. When you get when you get the itch, I'll tell you what, man. I I I said it several times on this podcast. I started my career as a mechanic, but when I went on my first deployment, I was a mechanic, but I was attached to combat engineers doing route clearance operations. So the guy, the guys that drive down the road in in the big trucks and they look for bombs, they look for roadside bombs, basically. And over the course of that year, that, that my my first deployment was a, a year long deployment. Over the course of that year, um, I got the itch. I mean, I, I I don't know any other way to describe it. Like, and it's it's like a, you know, like uh, you you talk about, you know, you hear uh, heroin addicts describe their addiction as chasing the dragon. And I've I've been chasing that dragon 
ever since 2011 when I went to Afghanistan the first time. And that's why I tried out for special forces a couple of times. That's why I reclassed and went over to the infantry um, so that I could have a chance, a better chance to go back. I, all, I, all I wanted after my first deployment was to go back. It was like it was like this this all encompassing hyper focused vision in my head of just going back to Afghanistan. I wanted to go back to Afghanistan and I got my wish like twice. I got to go back to Kandahar in 2016 and I went to Helmand province in 2018. And it's one of those things where we as veterans, we don't always talk about it as much because some of the stuff, you know, we we get we, we get put on a pedestal sometimes as veterans and uh, but we don't always talk about the stuff that we don't like talking about. Right. And some of the stuff is very uncomfortable to talk about. Like the fact that I liked the feeling I got going on a mission. I liked rolling out the gate. I like not, I liked not knowing. I like not knowing if I was going to live or die that day. I like, I like that. It made me feel good. And it's not comfortable to talk about that. It's very, it's not the part that you hear in a lot of the war stories or a lot of the, the documentaries you become like a fucking war junkie and just the feeling that you get, like it made, it makes you feel alive. And there were times when I had a couple of close calls on, I had at least one close call on all three of my tours and you have these fucking close calls and you think you're going to fucking die. You literally like, this is it. Like, this is it. I'm fucking dead today. Today's the day. And then you live and the come down. It's like a fucking drug. Like, you know, I'm not going to say what I did or didn't do before my active duty service, but I lived, right? Like I lived way before I was in the army. I lived. I have a lot of experiences in life, right? But it's like a fucking drug. And I've never experienced a drug where the come down was so euphoric. Like you're talking about being on cloud fucking nine because I literally thought I was going to fucking die. And then I lived and the come down, it was so euphoric and just being on cloud nine and just like, now I'm alive. Now I know I'm a fucking live. And there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no experience that compares to that. Like I, I ride a roller coaster now with like a fucking stone face because it's like, this doesn't compare. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not exciting enough, right? Like you put, put me 400 feet in the air and drop me down to like six feet off the ground. I'm just going to be like, okay. Like I, I knew I was safe, right? Like, okay. Like it's not, it's not the same anymore. Like life, life really develops this really hazy shade of gray after you experience that and all I wanted to do was go back and I got my wish. I got to go two more times and I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of, to be able to do that, but I can understand why these guys want to go back to Syria or goddamn back to Afghanistan or Iraq just to get back into the fight because that's where you feel alive. You just feel fucking alive, you know? Were, so were you guys, so I, I joined the year after, uh, were you guys still in? Were when? You guys, they're, they're in, uh, uh, the announcement of Osama's death. I was, but I was a month. I was, I was in, but I was a month away from deploying. So I was at Fort Leonard Wood, and we 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 left. We left like a couple weeks later. So like we started, we started traveling to Afghanistan in like late May, and we got there in June. We got there like the very like I think we got there June second. So like ten years ago, ten years ago in about a month, I was in Afghanistan for the first time in my life, and like. It was about a month after he fucking died so when I got there. Did you so, have so with, with all that? Did you have like a fire under your ass, like ready to go? Like, okay, we just killed Osama. Oh fuck yeah! What, oh like, fuck yeah! Like, what's next? Like, you know, like we got we got we got the head of the snake. Now we have to get the rest of the body. Like, I, I can only imagine the feeling that you guys 
had going out there knowing that just shortly after you know there was going to be fucking it, it must have been it's, i can only imagine there must have been madness out there if you if you look if you look back on the some of the statistics uh 2011 to 2012 that was when we had the most troops there uh we we flew into kandahar i i wasn't stationed in kandahar on that deployment but we had to fly into kandahar to take um chinooks out to our fucking fob which was way up north so we did a lot of like fob hopping in helicopters to get to our fob but at Can- kandahar at the time uh, kandahar airfield we call it calf it was like a fucking small city there's a thing in kandahar called the boardwalk it had a fucking tgi fridays on it bros there was a fucking tgi fridays in kandahar afghanistan right bagroom had subway pizza hut yeah and it was like there was like there was like thirty thousand people in Kandahar when we got there. And, and everybody, just to give people an idea, so in the forward firebase, or you know the fobs or whatever, whatever people want to call them, combat outpost. That's whatever. where that's where the <laughs> typically happens, you know. And in these in these large sort of cities, the airfields, it's where a lot of the logistics happen. And um, people have weapons just because of protocol. But they're always on their backs and their uniforms have like permanent dark spots from the oil of the weapon. That's how you know like they they'll never they've never been and probably never will be outside the wire. They do a logistical job, which is extremely important. You know, I'm not trying to diminish anybody's stuff, but like that that life is different from the firebase life, you know. I still have the um the I still have a pair of pants, a pair of army pants, right? We you know, um we call them bottoms, right? And I still have the first pair that I wore. I wore that pair every day. I washed it a couple of times. We had we actually had laundry facilities at my at my small fob I was at. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we, we were lucky. We were lucky. You know, we were very lucky. We were with. Uh, it was in a. Oh, well, I washed my uniforms in a bucket. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things. Like, not all experiences are the mm. same, right? And we we were lucky to be on a fob where we had they had these big giant bladders. And these bladders were filled with water, right? Water buffaloes. Right? No, not not a buffalo. And I'm talking like like imagine like a waterbed. Oh God. Oh, you guys okay. like a, it's like I'm talking, but these but these these bladders these bladders are so big when you take all the water out and you roll them up to move them, they weigh like a ton, like a literal like they weigh over a thousand pounds. That, it, filled, it's like a it's like a rubber and leather bag with like a net inside yes. of it or something like that. Yep. Giant, oh, oh, oh yeah. Giant I've, I've I've had to. So. <laughs> Yeah. So the first the first fob I was on, it was an Italian fob, and there was about two hundred Italian paratroopers, in- infantry paratroopers, on this fob, and so we did have laundry, we had laundry facilities, we had hot and cold running water, thank God, uh, but it was it was very kind of remote, and I wore this pair of pants until I couldn't wear it anymore. I still have it, and there's holes like giant fucking holes. There's there's a hole in my pockets where I would keep um, an extra magazine. There's a hole where I was keeping my my dip can, like th- these pants are because tor- I was a mechanic. I was I was on the ground all the time underneath trucks, working on stuff, going on mission. You know, we we would, we would go on mission. And I'd have to get out and fix the fucking whatever engineer truck broke down that fucking day. You know, like in the middle of fucking nowhere Afghanistan up in the north in RC West. You know, and I still have that pair of pants. Like I cherish those pants because they're so tore the fuck up, and it shows the work that we did. You know what I mean? Like those pants show the work that we did. Like we were out all the fucking time. Like in those engineers that I served with, I still 
talk to a lot of them to this day. Like they're some of the greatest men I've ever known. Cause we, it was just our platoon. Our, we were very, we were very fortunate. We were kind of away from the flagpole. We didn't have anybody over us. It was our platoon sergeant and our, and our PL, our Lieutenant were in charge of us. And that was it. It was our platoon. We were by ourselves. And then we'd get a fucking uh, platoon sergeant PL would get them. They'd get an email and they'd say tomorrow you're going out here. So we would fucking go out, go out the gate and we'd fucking do a, a route clearance mission and we'd fucking go there and then we'd turn around and we'd go back home, you know, and, and, and that was, and that was our fucking, the first six months, you know, we, we changed fobs a couple of times, but the first, well, it wasn't six, about the first four months I was there, that was the fob we were on, but it was, it was remote. It was, we were nowhere. We were in the middle of nowhere. Americans had like not even been seen there in a long time, you know, in certain parts that we did missions to. And I remember the, the engineers got really excited. It was a mission that I, as mechanics, we, we didn't always go on every mission. So we would rotate. So mechanics were on every mission, but not every mechanic went on every mission. So one of the missions that I missed, they went to a portion of Afghanistan where Americans had not been like probably ever. And the engineers got so excited because when they were rolling through this one village, a fucking kid got on top of a building and he was wearing a Spider-Man suit. And the engineers got so excited. They were taking pictures because this kid had a Spider-Man suit and he had, and he actually got, he got on top of his house and was waving at the engineers as they were driving by because he was wearing a Spider-Man suit. Right. Like it was fucking badass, dude. Like I fucking love that shit, dude. Like I, if I could go on mission right fucking now, dude, I would fucking do it. Like I, I had some really good memories from Afghanistan. I would like fucking that. do it. These really weird little moments, quirky little moments that like, stand out. Um, I was, I was in Afghanistan in OEF four. So that was Oh three to Oh four. So when Osama got killed, I was, I had been out for five years. Mm. I got five. And, uh, but I had this one instance where uh, I was in just a, uh, I don't even know if you would consider it an, an outpost or a fight. It was, it was not far outside of Bagram. Sometimes when we were in Bagram, they would push us out to kind of like post, not, not at the uh, towers, but outside. <clears throat> and I was just watching my, my little area. I was up high and there's a, a big clearing. And, you know, it, you should note, like from my vantage point, I could see a number of, of little Afghani dwellings that were like mud, you know, almost like cob, I guess. I don't know what they made them out of, but, um, they didn't have roofs, you know, it was just like, you could see the layout almost like you were playing a Sims game or something like that. Oh, and they would, like, and they would like shit in the corner of their room or something like that. But at the same time, and there was another one that had a partial roof that, that an Afghani was sleeping on the roof. He had a little straw um, rollout mattress thing that he slept on. But in the middle of all this shit, suddenly I see like people start gathering in this dirt ass field and I'm starting, okay. Cause I'm, uh, to me, that's that's a red flag. I'm like, okay, what's what's going on here? I'm like calling the shit in on the fucking radio and going, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm seeing. Well, what happens is in the middle of nowhere, in this fucking bullshit, poor-ass fucking place where at the same time, all these Afghani men were lining up at a rock quarry in the hopes that they would get picked to bust fucking rocks all day. That's the state of like what was going on. They pull out fucking soccer goals and all these kids come out in uniforms, soccer uniforms, and start playing soccer. And it was the fucking crazy <laughs> chance. And they like, were probably good as hell too, right? 
Huh? They were probably good as hell too, right? Oh my god, dude! Like <laughs> it was insane. Like I was entertained watching the the the, the ball control. I mean, these were legit fucking soccer players, but in the middle of a place where they didn't even have a roof and they shit in their fucking house. They're wearing soccer. Granted, they didn't match. It wasn't like one team against the other, but like they had soccer uniforms and they all came in their soccer uniforms and they had gold. And, you know, like they did you see the uh, there was an Afghan kid who was a big Messi fan and he had used. He had used a T-shirt and and strips of strips of trash to make a messy uniform, a, a messy soccer jersey. I haven't seen it. And yeah, it, it well, fucking really Messi good. got a, Messi got a hold of that story, and he got a fucking actual jersey to this kid. I think I think he met the kid. I, I want to say he met the fucking That's kid. It would dude, it was super cool, man. Like the the, the Afghan people are it, it's a beautiful people, yeah. beautiful culture, just like every just like everybody else. They just want to be fucking left yeah. alone. They want to live they, their they, life. They got right? the shit end of the stick. They really fucking did. They really, really fucking did. And, it, and it's it's I, it's hard to put into words. You know, when when you go there and you experience it, and you you, I've I've dined with I've dined with Afghans, and I've I've eaten their food. Yeah. Um, I've met some really what the I've I've been thanked a thousand times for my service since I've been in. I've been in for eleven years. The one that I remember the most and the one that means the most to me on my second tour, um, prior to us going to Kandahar, my second tour, uh, we went there in February of 2016 in December of 2015, right outside of Kandahar airfield, the Taliban attacked a fucking school and they, they shot the shit out of it. And the ANA and American forces went in and fucking took care of it or whatever, but the school was in fucking shambles. So while we were there, they were in the process of rebuilding it. Right. Well, there was an Afghan engineer there. And when I say engineer, it's not like an army engineer, like an actual engineer, like somebody who builds buildings and shit, right? He had been schooled in Europe. He had gone to college in Europe. And me and him developed a rapport. I was pulling security while my my higher-ups were having meetings while they were rebuilding the school. I was pulling security. And me and this dude established a rapport. And he was actually one of the top dudes there, like rebuilding the school. Well, one day... Um, we started talking and we sat down on this little ledge in, inside this schoolhouse and I showed him a picture of my family. I showed him a picture of my, my wife at the time, my ex-wife now, but my, my wife at the time, my two babies, you know, and I showed him like, well, this is my family, you know, whatever. And what, what really captured my imagination was he very carefully, like dude, like literally like looking around like this when he did it out of his pocket, he pulls out a picture of his wife who was also going to college in Europe at the time. So she wasn't there at the time, but he showed me a picture of his wife, which in Afghan culture, that's a big no, no. And the fact that this dude had the balls, the balls, because we had established rapport. We were obviously friendly and we were friends at the time. We freaking, he he showed me a picture of his wife and it meant so much to me. And then he said, I'm glad you're here. And I'm, and thank you for coming. Like, cause all he wanted was a better country for his family. Yeah. And to have to have an Afghan tell me thank you meant way more, you know. And I'm not I'm not saying I appreciate it when people tell me thank you. I, I appreciate it. It means a lot to me, you know. But to have a a member of the country, like a local, tell me thank you meant so much more because it it gave me a sense of purpose that what I was doing was right, and that we we were doing the right thing. We were rebuilding a fucking school that got shot up by a bunch of fucking cocksuckers who attacked a fucking school, period. 
Like they, like they attack a no fucking reason. school. For no reason. No, it, it, there is a reason. It's called terrorism. Like when, you, when, when the local populace is fucking scared to death, you have control. When, they're, when people live their lives in fear, you control them. You know, it, fear, fear is a fucking tactic that is used. It, it's, it's a psychological tactic. And to shoot up a fucking school, you know, and to have somebody coming in to rebuild it and have that person tell me that they appreciated that I was there while they were rebuilding it, like, it, it just, it meant a lot. It really fucking meant a lot, you know? Like, it's, again, like Sean said, it's like one of those, that memory, like, literally just popped in my head. Like, it was like, I hadn't thought about, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Like, that that dude was really, and he gave, uh, they did another mission out there, and I, I, I didn't, I was on a different mission that day, so I didn't go to the schoolhouse that day, but he gave my company commander a piece of, uh, it's, it's like block candy. It, it's got like kind of like a waxy texture to it, but it's candy. And it, it was wrapped in cellophane, and he gave it to my company commander, and he said, make sure Sergeant Campbell gets this. And so when they got back, the commander gave it to my, my, my LT, and my LT came and knocked on my hooch because my mission, my mission had already been over that day for a while. So I was in my hooch. My LT comes up and knocks on the door, and I'm like, "What's up, sir? What's going on? You know, like, can I can I help you? Right? My LT was cool. Don't get me wrong, but he hands me this fucking block of candy, like Afghan candy, and he's like, "That dude you were talking to last time wanted you to have this, and like, and I never I never saw him again because my mission set was a little bit different, and I was going to different places, and like our company was kind of spread out basically. Like we were doing all of our missions in Kandahar for the for the most part were in pretty close proximity to Kandahar airfield. And then we had a dip, uh, a couple different other sets of missions that we did that were in Kandahar city, which is about, I don't know, about maybe 10, 10 miles, six miles from where we were at on Kandahar airfield. And, you know, um, fuck, I haven't thought about this in a long time. That's crazy. And, uh, yeah. And if, and if Ann is still listening, uh, the pants probably do still fit. Cause I always wore them baggy. <laughs> the pants do still fit. I always wore them baggy, but, I wouldn't get away with wearing those pants in public. Put it that way, because they are, they are ratted and they are old and they are full of holes. Like so. <laughs> so yeah. No oh, man, that was. I haven't thought about that shit in a long time, dude. Good that, shit, man. That must been, that must have been another like fire under your ass moment too. It it really was, man. It, it you know it. When you sign up to do something, you you know you can tell yourself, you can fill yourself full of all the ideas, you know the hopes, the dreams you know, what, what you're doing. And I always like to bring up the fact that I, I didn't join until I was 29. So I joined very, very late. So I do not have, I do not have the excuse of being a young high school, you know, kid just signing up out of high school and going. Um, I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew exactly, I knew exactly what all the arguments were. You know, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, which is a very uh, liberal area of Arizona, which I'm not against liberals. I'm not against conservatives either. But Tucson is a very, liberal bastion of Arizona. And so I grew up around a lot of my friends were very against the war, you know, especially Iraq, you know, and and I don't, I don't want to disparage the Iraq war at all. And especially not the people that served there. They did some amazing things there. Um, And I know there was a lot of Iraqis that were glad that we were there too, that we got rid of Saddam. I know that that country has seen it's fucking more than its share of a shit storm since the Gulf war in 1990, 1991. But I knew what I was signing up for, you know, point being, I had no illusions about what I was doing. I knew that I was joining the United States Army and the United States military 
but I wanted to do more for the world, you know, in my own small way, if possible. And on all three of my tours, I think I got the opportunity at, at various points to, to do that. Um, and to give, give, give back to the world that gave me life and, you know, do something so that other people don't necessarily have to, there's people out there, like a lot of my friends were against the war. We don't have a draft anymore. It's an all volunteer service. So by being an all volunteer service, that means we don't have to have a draft. We're not conscripted. And a lot of my more liberal minded friends probably would have not wanted to go into the military if they had been conscripted, right? Just like in Vietnam. You know, you see the pictures of people burning their draft cards in Vietnam and shit. It's, you know, it would have been probably very similar in our lifetime if we had a conscription service or a draft. We don't have a draft because people volunteer. And I knew what I was signing up for when I signed up for it. And I wanted to go. I wanted to go. And I'm glad and very thankful and fortunate that I got not one chance. I got three chances to go. And I did. And I came. I'm lucky and fortunate that I came home. And I... I have a beautiful family. I've got a, a wonderful support system. My family loves me. I've got two beautiful children. I'm very lucky. And I, I think a lot of it is I, I live my life. I try to live my life as well as I possibly can because I know people that didn't make it home. And yeah. especially, and especially because, especially yes, because sir. I know yes, people, sir. I know people that made it home, but they ended up going out later and, and that, and that it, it hurts my heart. And so I live, I live my life for them too. You know, so I've got, I've got these two bands that I wear every day. One of them has two names on it. And those are two people that I knew that died downrange. And the second one down here, the second one is for two people that I was close with that, uh, took their own lives, you know, because that just because they didn't die downrange doesn't mean that the war didn't follow them home. You know what I mean? And that's, that's yeah. So yeah, yeah. We also got here, um, Army Infantry Officer, First Lieutenant, excuse me if I mispronounce this, Igor Krasnanosenke. Ooh, okay. That, that's, you know, I, I'm not Joe Rogan. I'm, I, I, can't, I can't get these names right, but I think, I think I did it pretty good. A platoon leader with the 7th Infantry Division's 4th Battalion, 2nd Striker Brigade Combat Team. You just talked mm-hmm. about this. What last week you were just talking about that 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 was a place you almost went to? Yeah, I was supposed to be part of that group right there. Yeah. Second, he he created the EIB Pro by teaching himself how to program through YouTube videos and other online resources while cooped up at home during the early months of the pandemic. So, this guy was on uh, Reddit, and it's 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 a news story right now. But he was on Reddit last year in the Army subreddit. And he was kind of hawking, and he was like, hey, I made an app. For all you grunts out there that are trying to get your EIB, I got an app, and I made an app, and it's to help you study. Because, like, when you do the EIB, for those of you guys that are not familiar with the infantry, when you do the EIB, it's basically like a two-week shit show. And it's like two weeks. It's like two It's like two weeks. <laughs> no joke, man. Dude. <laughs> it is like, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's literally like it's two weeks of drinking from a fire hose. Like oh, that is shit. the only way I can describe it. Like <laughs> the EIB is the actual EIB testing is over the course of three days. And it is literally like it, there's thir- there's like 30 events, literally 30 events. And you have to get a go in every single event to get your EIB. And at the very end, 
you have to fucking do a 12-mile ruck march, and you have to do another event after you finish the 12-mile ruck march to get your EIB. And so it, this is this is no small thing. Like, a lot of grunts make fun of the EIB, but I'm telling you right now, the, that EIB holds a special place, right? Um, when I, I've, only, I've only had the opportunity to do it once, and I still kick myself because they trained us very well. And I still kick myself that I didn't get it because that was the year to get it, right? And I didn't get it. It's hard. You only get three mistakes, which is to say you only get two mistakes. You can get two mistakes. When you make your third mistake, you're out. Over 30 events, you have to get like a first time go. Like on pretty, You have to pretty much get a first time go on everything. And if you've already made two mistakes, if you made two, if you made, if you made two mistakes on your first two events, one mistake on each of your first two events, you have to go the entire rest of the way through without making any mistakes. And if you make no mistakes, they call it going true blue. If you make no mistakes all the way through, it's, called, yeah. it's, it's not easy. It is, it is not fucking easy. So this lieutenant developed this app to help people study because typically when you're in the field, when you're training, whatever, you're not studying for the EIB, right? So this guy made this app to help people study in their off time when they're not training for the EIB. Because during those two weeks, they train you in all these events. But it's like you get you go out at like five in the morning in full kit. And then you sit there and you take class after class after class after class for two weeks straight to prepare you for this event. And then those three days that you test, that's the actual event. First, you take a PT test. If you pass the PT test, then you go to the fucking land, uh, land navigation course. If you pass land navigation course, uh, then you go into the actual testing. And it's not, it's not, it's not easy. And it's, it's, if you earn that badge, good on you. And if there's somebody out there listening that and you've got your EIB, I salute you, you know, for having your EIB, you know what I mean? Like everybody pluses up the, the combat infantry badge and the combat action badge, you know, cause we've seen combat or whatever. I salute those of you that took the time out of your life to become a master of your craft, become a master of your MOS and become an expert infantryman. Right. I salute you for that because it is not easy to get. And this Lieutenant did a really cool thing by making that app. Like it, cause you, now you can study on your own time. You can study and you can know exactly what it says because it's John. I know you're probably somewhat unfamiliar. Like, let's say like we're doing. Let's say we're doing like the M the M two the M two fifty cal right the M two the fifty cal. There's like a series of twenty things you have to do on the M two. Okay, like you have to freaking take the take the take the weapon off safe off safe like charge the handle. By the way, you have to charge the handle a certain way. Like so, palms up, right? Charge the handle. Make sure the weapon is clear. Push, push the weapon forward. Take, you know, take your hand off. Put the weapon back on safe. Load, load around. Like it's all kind of like open the feed tray. Open the feed tray. Load around or load around. Charge the hand. Close the feed tray. Charge the handle. Uh, load your ghost round. Go forward. Charge the handle again. Load your actual round. Go forward. You know, it's it's ridiculous. It's like twenty, and that's for one event. Like, and you have to do those things in Jesus sequence. Jesus Christ! If you go out of if you go out of sequence. You are no go at this station. So you are no go at this time. So like, needless to say, the EIB is a pretty good bragging right. Oh fuck oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fuck <laughs> yeah. And, and and sadly, and I don't. I hate I hate elitism. I always have. But there's like there are people who have a combat infantry badge that don't have an expert infantry badge, like myself. Same. There are people who have an expert infantry badge that don't have a combat infantry badge, and they constantly are talking shit to the <laughs> other. Well, I actually did my job. 
you're you're like administrative infantry like you know <laughs> like, so it's, like corporate but just to give you an example uh i had a buddy who was killing it he was i i do regret uh as i was getting out of the army we were doing eib testing at drum and uh i didn't go out for it because i was i was already doing my out processing paperwork and i wish i would have because i know i could have done it but I was just, I was already fixated in getting out. And I was just like, fuck this, man. Like, I'm done. I'm done. I died. <laughs> I deployed. I did my shit. I'm home. I'm getting out. And I, hear that. And I had a bud. Oh, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Buddy. Um, <laughs> and he was doing really, really well through all the events and all the different ones. And of all the shit that he was a no-go at, uh, he was doing the radio bit and he said, oh, oh. And he said, and he said five instead of five, five, five. And he lost out on the EIB because of fucking five, five. Yep. You will. And there's a I've, no go at the station. I'm sorry. You are no go at this time. That's why the E stands for experts, experts, experts. <laughs> I do. I, I obviously I never went for an EIB, but I did go for one badge. Um, was it like the German? It was like the German. Oh, the German, so, German PT badge. Yeah. So the yeah. I I attempted it, and you know, then you know, I got to give it to my NCO at the time, Sergeant Sally, because he really believed in me. He really believed in my swimming abilities. I don't know why, and he, you know, he he told me how it was. He was like, "Oh yeah, you're just gonna, you know, you're gonna go in with your with your ACUs, and you're gonna try not to drown." Exactly, exactly how he put it. He, he goes, just, just, you know, just get in there. You know, you're gonna do some scissor swims. You know, dog paddles, whatever. He goes, just go ahead and do it. I'm like, all right, great, too easy. I got this. Let's do this. I almost fucking drowned. There, I've, you know, I've, I've never swam with my clothes on before. You know, so, so I, you know, so that 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 was kind of a new thing for me. But I, I, I'll, I. We'll never forget how hard I was struggling to to swim with my uniform on a small pool, a regular, you know, just a regular fucking swimming pool. It wasn't no Olympic size shit. So it goes to show badge hard, badge mm -hmm. hard. <laughs> if it, John, if it makes you feel any better, um, I got the gaffy and I got it in gold. I got it in gold just for you, Woo. just for you. Who? So ah. there's a. For those of you guys who don't know, the, the German PT badge, there's three levels. You have gold, silver, and bronze. And when I was at Fort Leonard Wood, when I was still a mechanic, um, our company commander happened to be good friends with a German liaison. He was a German sergeant major. And so our company got to do the Gaffby. That's cool. And I got gold. I got gold. I like gold. <laughs> I've heard of it before. Well, there's, there's, two, there's two German badges that are kind of – prestigious i guess and it's the, the the pt badge obviously and the shoots and sneer which is a weapons qualification that one also comes in gold silver and bronze and the big joke in the army is that silver looks better with our uniforms and my res my response to that is the only people that say that are the people that didn't get that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the uh that's the kind of the, the back and forth between eib and cib is like exactly the right bitter about the shit is the ones that didn't get the other one that's correct that and is correct. always that silent group that has both that are like that's uh that's my buddy uh that's my uh, buddy ronnie J. so that that year i told you the, the the one the one time i've done eib um 
my buddy Ronnie J, he got his EIB. And then when we, when we deployed the year after, uh, we got our CIBs. And they're actually talking, uh, it's, it hasn't become a thing yet, but they're talking about combining the two. Where if you have both, they will call it the Master Infantryman's Badge. Oh, baby. And they, I think and, that's great. And I they, like that. It, you know, so you know how like the CIB has like the uh, silver wreath around it? And the EIB is just the the square, you know, the rectangle with the uh, yeah. There yep. you go. That's they would make the the only change the, oh, the the only the only change would be the only change to it would be the wreath would be in gold. That'd that's be the only change. That's nice. That would be that a fucking fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I totally down with that because you it is that. you deserve that. I mean, if we're if we're talking, you know, candy. Well, because well, you can only wear one. Uh, as per army regulation, right. you can wear one yeah. or you can wear the other. You can't wear both at the same time. So and if why you have both, though, because you can um, you can have airborne wings and you can have master jump wings and all that shit. But if you jump in combat, you get the little mustard must stain uh, yep. or the gold star. Yeah, you know. So why not be able, as an infantryman, to dis distinguish yourself above and beyond, which is the whole point of infantry. It's the whole point of the expert infantry badge is to say. That's why I we get to wear a fucking blue cord. But I did it at a high level. That's exactly why we get a blue cord. That's why we get the blue discs. That's why we get the blue discs around our shit on our fucking lapel. You know what I mean? On our collar, excuse me. Like, that's exactly why. And, and you're right. Like, and they deserve it. So, and and by the way, they, the expert infantry badge has been a thing for a long time. They are now doing the um, expert soldier badge. It's the ESB for all other wow. MOS now. And That's so awesome. like prior prior to a couple years ago it was just infantry and medics yeah. got a chance to do like an expert badge basically. Now the entire and army I, also a combat version same same. Same yeah. same. Combat, combat infantry. Yeah. Yep. And now the now the entire army has it with the global war on terrorism the army realized that it it's not just one M, one MOS or another MOS that are out there seeing shit all the time. So it's good that these soldiers are having the opportunity to do these things and become experts at their craft and become experts at uh, basic soldiering. You know, it's really what it comes down to. It's basic soldiering, you know, but you're, if you're an expert at the basics, how much better are you when you climb the ranks? How much yeah. better, of a, how much better of a leader will you be when your soldier says, Sergeant, how do I load this radio? Yeah. Sergeant, how do I take apart this 240 Bravo? Sergeant, whatever. And you can show them. Because you know, because you're a fucking expert, right? Like you know, so like that's that's the whole point of it, really. That's, so that's always Sergeant, been the one thing I loved about the military that there's should always. Should I marry the barracks chick? The, what do what? But Sergeant, should I marry this barracks chick? <laughs> so, hey, so, hey, I don't know about you, Sean, but I got my mountain tab, bro. So <laughs> I didn't marry her though. I didn't. I didn't hang on. John, say what you're going to say. I'm going to grab something to show you, do some show and tell real quick. I'll be right back in like Ooh, 10 seconds. I'm excited to see this. What uh, you got, John? The, so the one thing that, that I've always loved about the military is that there's no excuse and there's always an opportunity to learn more. Absolutely. I mean, there's... That is correct. I, I mean, you for... for Okay, for... I will say outside of quartermasters, because I know a lot of quartermasters, like myself, were always on the job most of the time. Right, but, but for people outside of that, you know, like um, you know, forty-two alphas, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, your your regular paper pushers who are done with their days at twelve at twelve in the afternoon sometimes, right. you mm -hmm. know, they 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 have the time to learn, and they and the military gives you the time. 
to take the opportunity to to do more you know go go yep. you know even go to the gym for 45 minutes and get your pt good you know go go to the go go to the gym it's fucking free right you right know, the, the the gym is free the library's free you know right. they, they give you hey, all go, the- go, go, some, go do some college courses go sign up go sign up for some college courses go do some correspondence you know whatever but you're exactly right yeah and exactly i exactly right. and i think this is a great thing that he made the EIB Pro. I, oh, and he even says it too. You know, now, now, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. He, he even ahead. says that he, he, him, and so many people agree with the fact that the book is so small and easy to lose or get destroyed. You know, the get the app. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have like at least like two or three EIB books, like somewhere in my garage closet right now, buried somewhere in a in a bag. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty sure I have at least one or two EIB books floating around somewhere, you know, from, from a long time ago. So, yeah. All right. Oh, here we go. At an antique store. Oh, shit. Oh, this wow. This is the original combat infantry badge. Where did you fucking find that? In world, it was at a, it was at a place, uh, maybe in the two towns over from me at an antique store. Shut and this, the European theater. The, and the combat infantry badge came out in World War II. This is a World War II jacket with the original. I mean, it's worn. I know it's legit because this shit is made of a different material than the stuff they gave us. Yep. Uh, and it's just, it's beautiful, man. And that is amazing. That, you see, like the, I think that's the social. I'm not really sure. It's kind of. No, that would be his uh, service number. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that's probably just initials. That's probably just, just initials. Yeah. Just to give you a little bit of like frame of reference, would fit on a twelve-year-old. It's that small. I was gonna say it's it's small. Wow, I wouldn't yeah. be able to get my arms in like a T-Rex in this thing. It's that fucking small. But yeah, I saw a shadow box. So look at these. Look at these tabs, man. Look how worn they are. Yeah. Wow. And see, that was before, and in World War II, that was before they gave us the blue discs and the blue cord. So they had the they had the combat infantry badge. But they did. We didn't have. They didn't have a blue cord at the time. The blue cord didn't come out till the 1950s. That is so cool, man. Yeah, and that so rank. This is like, like, like J2 and then 7.14. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a date. Maybe I don't know. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's uh, a private private second class PV2. Yep. PV2. That's good shit, Sean. That's badass, dude. And for our last, our last main event story. He mentored decades of Army Rangers. At 94, he will receive the Medal of Honor. Retired Colonel Ralph Puckett will become one of the most highly decorated soldiers in U.S. history. Fuck, yes. Tell us about what he did. Does it, does it tell about his action? Uh, yeah, actually. There is a very, a very nice little story here. Shivering in freezing temperatures, about 50 U.S. soldiers braced for the worst. Hundreds of Chinese soldiers were about to launch a series of bloody attacks on the hill the Americans had just taken under fire. And no reinforcements were within a mile. The clash that then First Lieutenant Ralph Puckett and his soldiers experienced that night on Hill 205 came at the outset of the Battle of Chongchan River, a pivotal moment in which senior U.S. commanders were surprised by China's full-scale entry into the Korean War. Says thousands of U.S. soldiers died in the following days as they withdrew hundreds of miles back into South Korea in what the Army now describes as the longest retreat in U.S. military history. 
Puckett, who commanded the 8th Army Ranger Company, was wounded by a hand grenade in the first attack on the hill on November 25th, but stayed in command. American and South Korean soldiers absorbed five more chaotic armed assaults through the night before Puckett ordered his soldiers to withdraw the following morning as the Chinese threatened to overrun them. It says here that he was, he was already wounded three times and he was lying there in his foxhole unable to do anything. I could see three Chinese about 15 yards, 15 yards away from me and they were bayoneting or shooting some of my wounded rangers who were in foxhole. More than 70 years later... Puckett, who was 94 now, will receive the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest award for valor in combat for his actions. President Biden called Puckett at his home in Columbus, Georgia. Oh, actually, that's where Fort Benning is. Yes, it is. Yep. That's Fort Benning. Yep, that's right. That's home of the infantry. Yes. Home of the infantry. If you, if you guys don't know, uh, I like to change my backdrops once in a while. What you see behind me is the National Infantry Museum. It's on Fort Benning, Georgia, but it is open to the public. If you guys ever find yourself down south in Georgia, make a, make a little side trip if you can and go check that infantry museum out. It is, it is hallowed ground for us. Um, I did it. I've been there twice. I went once when I reclassed and I went once again when I was going to uh, ALC uh, before I picked up my, the rank of staff sergeant. And this place you see behind me is I, I get, I get chills and I, I, I got tears in my eyes both times walking in there because of how proud I was just being, just being part of that club. Just being part of that club, you know, means that much. And if you ever get a chance, go check out the National Infantry Museum in Columbus, Absolutely. Georgia. Yeah. And, and like just reading more of this, I'm getting more chills down my spine because uh, the Army credits Puckett with leading his soldiers across an open field to take the hill under intense fire, braving enemy fire repeatedly to check on his soldiers after he was wounded the first time and directing danger close artillery strikes near his own position to ward off advancing soldiers. Now this this is what gave me chills down my spine because it really goes to show color doesn't exist, rank doesn't exist. No, no, none of that shit exists. Puckett has said he told his soldiers to leave him behind after he was anticipated, but two private first class, Billy Walls and David Paula, carried him to safety. That's right. Private's doing the right thing. And that, and, that, and that man is still alive today. About That's to correct. receive the Medal of Honor, and that, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, it's all when when you're downrange, it's it's only about the people to your left and to your right. Let me like, tell you something, guys. Like I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a situation like that. My my grandfather was in the Battle of Luzon in the Pacific Theater, and he was, and he got shot a number of times. He got machine gunned across the back. Ooh, and, and you know, like uh, warfare then was. A lot more brutal than it is for us uh, soldiers these days in the in the in the wars that we've been in for the past 30 40 years or whatever um but it, it was casualties everywhere and they didn't really have the time just you know medic no no air vacs no none of that shit. and so my granddad he just laid there until the battle was over and then they would send a truck around to try to see who was worth picking up putting on the truck and who they just needed to leave and so when they came to my granddad, they were going to leave him. It just so happens on the truck was somebody from the same little tiny fucking town in Virginia who knew my grand. And he goes, no, that's Ellis Dalton. Put him on the truck, put him on the truck. And they put him on the truck and he lived and he came home and met my grandma. Holy shit. That's fucking Holy shit. beautiful. That's beautiful. Yep. 
Yep. Just like that. Just like that. You know, it's crazy how the how, how the universe works, man. You know, mm-hmm. that's a, so. So to be able to take a shot like that, you know, and and we're and we're, and we're not talking about you know five five sixes or seven six twos. You know, we're not talking. You know, we're to, we're talking the fucking machine gun here. Machine gun, know? yeah. It's a bad ass. Yeah. It's a badass, man. It's a badass. Yeah. He came home and uh, he farmed and went to church and uh, was a school bus driver. Hell yeah. That's fucking badass. That's crazy, man. And, you know, to add on to, to this man's story, um, wow. He has earned a distinguished service cross. Hmm. That's that. That's that's right below the Medal of Honor for anybody yeah. that doesn't know. Um, says the nation's second highest award for valor for his action in the battle. The recognition came near the outset of a 22-year career that also included a second distinguished service cross. Two silver, two silver stars for 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 valor in Vietnam. Oh, fuck. And he was awarded five purple hearts for injuries suffered in combat and two bronze star medals with the V device for valor. Holy fuck, dude! So the the, the dude's the dude's like fucking Audie Murphy. Audie yeah. Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! Holy shit! Yeah. You know. Um, oh with, my god, dude! With an upgrade, he's a fuck, and he's a fucking ranger. He's a motherfucking yeah. ranger. With an upgrade to the Medal of Honor, he will be one of the most highly decorated service members for valor in the U.S. military. By far, by far. probably, probably, probably only only succeeded by fucking Audie Murphy. Yep. Audie Murphy's probably the only one that's fucking above above that. Yep. Like Jesus, what, what a hard fuck, man! What yeah. a hard fuck. Yep. And, am- yeah, and dude. Am- among those, yeah. uh, among those assisted in Puckett's case. Uh, the late Senator John McCain, who contacted the Army on Puckett's behalf a few months before dying, and, reti- and retired General Joseph Vodal and Stanley McChrystal, who know Puckett through their mutual service as Rangers. So, as Rangers. Rangers lead the fucking way. Yes, they fucking do. And let, me, and let me tell you, man, you, you know, you, you, you hear, you know, you hear this, like your gra- you hear these stories of your grandfather, you know, um, Colonel Puckett, you know, all th- th- these... You know, and and so many of them are still alive to tell their fucking story, you know. And even though you know, the story doesn't want to be told all the time. When the story is told, when the time is right, it, it it's you know it's you can't you can't make that shit up. You can't write a book about it. You can't make a movie about it. You know you you can imit- if you're if if you're lucky, you might be sitting in a local watering hole. And you might you might have had a couple of beers with a guy, and and if you're lucky, they'll open up a little bit and yeah. they'll tell you a little bit about it. You know, it, it took my grandpa, um, sim- somewhat similar story to Sean's actually. Uh, it took my grandpa. My grandpa is a Silver Star recipient from World War II. He was also in the Pacific Theater, cool. and I remember I found out he got a Silver Star when I was in the second grade because we were doing some little project at school, and I remember calling my grandpa on the phone and asking him questions. About about the war, and he told me. I asked him if he had any awards, and he said, "I have a silver star." Now I'm I'm in second grade. I don't know what the fuck a silver star is, right? Well, as I got older, you know, being me, I fucking do my research, and I realized that this is like the third highest award for valor in the in the in the U.S. military. And so I I started asking him, like, you know, you're about eight years old in second grade. I started asking him, like, year after year, like, Grandpa, what happened, Grandpa? Well, finally, when I was like 15 or 16, you know, they were out in Arizona from, from Missouri. 
for uh, Christmas. They came they they came out from for Christmas every year, and uh, he he sat me down in our our little I guess family room or living room and had his had my grandma uh, next to him, and he told me he told me what happened that he got the silver star for, but it took him that many years. But now like I remember after after he pa- he passed away a few years ago, after he passed, um, my grandma doesn't even remember what he did or what, what he had said that night. And I, I remember all of it. And it's one of those things where he had never, he had never told my grandma that. So when she was sitting in that room with us, she had never heard that story before. And it took me badgering, badgering the fuck out of my grandpa to get that story out of him. Right. And that's why I, I we, we, we talk, we've talked about this before on here where I know our generation is a little bit different. We're not, we're not, you know, every, every generation is a little bit different, right? Like every succeeding generation is a little bit different and, th- and there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make us better or worse. It just, every generation is a little bit different. We grew up a little bit different than the one before. Right. And our generation of warfighters, we are doing, be- because of how outspoken we are and because of how we grew up, we are doing such a great disservice, not only to our fellow warfighters, but to our civilian counterparts by not sharing our experiences, by not sharing our stories. And I'm not just talking about the people that went to Afghanistan, went to Iraq, went to Syria. I'm talking about people that just serve, period. We're doing a great disservice by not sharing our stories and allowing our civilian counterparts to experience with us what it is like to to serve, especially to volunteer to serve, to to willingly sign your name on a dotted line that says, I am writing a blank check to the United States of America up to and including my life and whatever that entails and whatever happens in between, whether I deploy 10,000 times to Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, whether I spend my entire career uh, in garrison and never fucking deploy, there is no shame in that. There's no shame in any of it. And we're doing a disservice by not sharing our stories and by not giving, giving more back to our civilian counterparts so that they understand the cost. They understand the sacrifice. They understand like what it, what it really truly entails. Um, I know it's May now it's May the 2nd. So uh, here in a few weeks, it's going to be Memorial day again, right? The, the, the unofficial, the unofficial beginning of summer. Right. And I know that's a really hard day for a lot of people. Um, I talked earlier about the bracelets that I wear every day. Um, But Memorial day is also a day of reflection and I want my civilian counterparts to have a good day on Memorial Day. I want them to fucking barbecue. I want them to fucking drink beer. I want them to celebrate the unofficial beginning of summer because that's exactly why I signed up. You know, I, that's exactly why I signed up so that you you didn't fucking have to. I can take it, you know, and we and we definitely took it. All of us took it. I'll take that fucking round for you. You drink your fucking beer. You barbecue your fucking steak and your ribs. Have a goddamn good time. Party for me. Party for party for us. And especially fucking party for the people that fucking aren't here anymore. Because we're still alive. We owe it. We owe it to our fallen to fucking live good lives. Because we know in our heart of hearts, if we were fucking sitting there crying in our beer every fucking night, they'd fucking sit down on that fucking stool next to us and say, quit being a fucking pussy. Get your fucking like, get your fucking balls. They fucking fell off over there. Fucking pick your balls up, put them back on, and start living your fucking life. You know, 
Harden the fuck up. Harden the fuck up. Period. Sew them up if you have to. The pain will only make you stronger. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Jesus, Jesus hates a pussy, dude. Yes, he does. And hey, we're uh, we're here now. At the end, this is. I think it's Sean's turn today. I think end. it's Sean. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> Final thought, dude. It's your turn. So as you see on the screen there, the suicide prevention hotline is one eight hundred two seven three talk. That's eight two five five. So, right? Yeah, two five five. I had eye surgery. I'm just checking, rechecking, because I'm. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not used to not being blind. <laughs> me, me too. Me too, actually. <laughs> so uh, it's a scourge amongst veterans. It's a scourge amongst humanity, but this is a veterans podcast. And so forgive us for being indulgent. We care about our people and uh, we don't want our people to feel like they're alone. And that is the problem. The problem is this misconception that you have nobody. Don't feel like you don't have nobody. You can reach out. It's okay. You know, you're not weak. Everybody has the moments where they're down, especially if you if you struggle with depression. There, there are those among us who have always been depressed, you know, uh, because kind of like the hallmark of depression typically is people who get into um, service type of jobs, whether it be fields working with disabilities or um, service as far as like food service or customer service or military service. Um, so it's up to kind of up to us, uh, to, to recognize where we are. I mean, that the acknowledgement to be able to acknowledge what's happening is like the biggest first step that you can make to making a change, not it, where we go wrong is the deflection and the, like like electricity finding the uh the path of least resistance you know don't don't find the path of least resistance because that typically is drugs and alcohol or um just self-destructive behavior um specifically relationships and more specifically relationships that mean the most to us because that hurts us the most we know what we're doing whether we can acknowledge it or not so if you can acknowledge that you know what? I'm in a fucking depression right now. And if I don't fucking stop, I'm going to undermine everything that I've got that's good for me in this life. And when you do that, when you do undermine everything that's good for you in this life, sometimes what looks to be the only obvious answer is to end that life, to take it from yourself, to take it from your loved ones who actually do love you and they're hurt. And they're probably pissed at you because you're being an asshole or because you won't stop drinking or because you won't stop doing X, whatever X might be. Um, we rob ourselves and we rob our loved ones of us. Well, we are people who took the time to serve our country and make a difference. And that is significant. Your service, no matter how it went or how it ended, was significant. Your life is significant. Your family and your children or your wife or your husband, like you play a significant role in their life and the absence of you won't make it better. That you might think it does. You might think they're better off without me. They're not. They're really not. 
what they're better off with is the, the best version of you that you can provide. And you're only going to get from where you are now to the best version of you if you can say, all right, what do I know? I know I'm in a bad spot and I know I got to get out of this bad spot. So reach out, take a breath, step back from your vices, give yourself a moment and, and take your first little tiny step and then take another little tiny step. And before you know it, you're out of that spot. It's going to take a while. It's going to be a grind and you may not recover some of those relationships that you've undermined, but there will be future relationships. I promise you there'll be a future girlfriend or a future husband or wife. Um, give yourself a chance. Give yourself a chance. Bet on you, you know, invest in yourself because when you do that, you, you create, that better version of you that will draw these new relationships that will draw more success in your life. Fucking do it, man. And call the number, call your, call your homies. You know, I've got like maybe two people left that I'm in contact with uh, that I was in the service with. So I have a whole lot of people to contact those two or so people. They would have no problem answering my call. No problem at all. But even if you don't have anybody, there are those lines and there are people who volunteer to answer that phone who actually give a fuck about you and don't even know who the fuck you are. They don't know who the fuck you are. They don't care who the fuck you are. They just know that you need help and they're they're willing to help somebody not die. So at the least, you've got that number. What is it again? 1-800-273-TALK. Be brutal. Be brutally honest. Say, like, I'm, I fucking want to off myself in the most painful, gory, disgusting way ever, and I hope everybody finds my body. If that's how you're feeling and that's where you're at, fucking call and talk to that person and tell them straight up. Because getting that stuff out, hearing yourself say those words might be the thing that puts you over that hump. Yep. And, I, if, and it, if, if you have the resources available to you, um, I've said it before here. I've, I've been I've been in, I've been seeing a therapist for, for about the last two years now. Um, if you have resources available to you, go go talk to somebody. Um, it has helped me immensely. Um, I I was in a bad place a couple of years ago, not necessarily suicide wise, but uh, I needed something extra. I needed something more. I knew there was a lot of things wrong in my life, and something had to change. And I went to uh, in the army, we call it behavioral health. I went to behavioral health and I said, I need to fucking talk to somebody and I need to talk to somebody like fucking yesterday. And so I went through the army process and I got um, a really good therapist and she had to retire. She, she was on her way out, but I saw her for about two years and I just saw my new therapist for the first time a couple weeks ago. And I'm seeing my new therapist again on Tuesday. So two days from now, I will be in an appointment at fucking nine o'clock in the morning at Fort Carson, Colorado, talking to a therapist, um, my second therapist in two years, um, because I need to talk to somebody. It's okay to talk, guys. It's okay to talk. Get it out. Let it out. It's okay to let that shit out. The world gets really, really fucking heavy. And there's people out there that are going to take some weight out of your rucksack and they're going to put it in theirs and they're going to carry it for you. And I know this podcast, I know between John and Sean and me, believe it or not, if you're listening, this podcast is like 
the three of us taking weight out of each other's rucksack. This 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 podcast is very um, cathartic for us. We do this we do this kind of for our own reasons, but we also do it because inter- internally, I know all three of us kind of need it. And that's the whole reason we started DD two fourteen gaming. And when it when it when DD two fourteen gaming took off last year, that's why we kept it going. That's why we we kept going hard with it. And we decided to start doing this podcast was because it was cathartic. There's a lot of people out there hurting, and we know you guys hurt because we hurt in the same fucking ways you guys do. But we're doing something about it. We're being proactive about maintaining our health and maintaining specifically our mental health. But we will also we'll have another podcast where we can talk about physical health, right? And we can talk about getting rid of some bad habits. You know, let's let's talk about bad habits, right? Let's talk about bad habits. But that's fucking spot on, spot on, Sean. All right, that was beautiful. Well, thank you, everybody. See you next week for Mother's Day. Oh shit! Is it Mother? Oh shit! <laughs> He just sold himself out on the on the show live. Good thing good thing my mom doesn't watch like yours, dude. <laughs> this, this is true. Well so long.